Hello and welcome to We Are History. I'm John O'Farrell. I'm Angela Barnes. And what are we talking about today, Angela? We are talking about the miners' strike, John. That Oh my God. I know, ripe for comedy. Even funnier than the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> That's what they say about it. Oh God, well... This is one of those stories where I talk about all the things I was doing and you're going, I was seven. Seven, I, I was, was seven. A kid. I was it I had my seventh birthday in the middle of it. So I think I was six when it when did it start? Eighty four. March eighty four, yeah. Yeah, so I turned seven in November eighty four. No, I didn't. That's a lie. I turned eight in November 84. Okay. We're all right. Oh, so you are much that's makes a huge So I was quite difference. mature. <laughs> well, I was a angry young sort of student stroke grad graduate, so you know, I felt very passionate about these miners with whom I had a huge affinity as an English and drama graduate from Exeter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at the cold face of drama. If I could have done a mine in my black leg warmers to support them, I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they would have appreciated it, John. Yeah, I mean, the whole point about this is all that time we're going, these are real jobs, these are proper jobs. This is, you know, the dignity of labour. And people are like, would, would you be a miner? Oh, goodness, no, no. I would get a job in the media somewhere. <laughs> So anyway, that's uh, a bit of background. Yes. A bit of background on the miners' strike. Britain, you know, had once been sort of almost totally dependent on coal for its uh, energy needs. There were a thousand pits after World War One. Something like 1.2 million miners, I think, which declined sort of gradually over the 20th century. The pits were nationalised by the Labour government in the 40s. The National Coal Board became mm -hmm. a sort of nationalised industry. But the miners always had a sort of heroic and sort of symbolic place in the Labour movement. Yeah, being a big union and a big workforce, I guess that's... Yeah, and a very politicised union, I think. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like call centre workers today. <laughs> <laughs> they had banners, they had brass bands, they had identity. The The streets of the North East were named after Lenin and Marx and things. They, <laughs> you know, they were a highly politicised workforce. In the 70s, there were a couple of coal strikes, which sort of, I think, is, sets the scene for the minor strike of 1984. The 1972 coal strike, Edward Heath's Conservative government, he had to back down. Mm. There was a famous incident at Saltley Coatworks when Arthur Scargill, who then was only the head of the Yorkshire miners, right. he had organised a mass picket which closed down uh, the coatworks. And the, he said to the policeman, give me your megaphone and I will tell the uh, flying pickets to disperse. And the policeman went, oh, OK, then. All right. So <laughs> oh, thanks. He gave, he gave Arthur Scargill's <laughs> megaphone. And Arthur Scargill went, this, this victory for the working classes proves that the ruling classes will never again be defeated by mass labour. And the policeman said, can I, can I have my megaphone back now? And the fascist police running capitalist pig dogs. Thank God that wasn't in America. Where we do, can I borrow your gun? Um, yes, <laughs> could have had a whole different outcome. Can you imagine that policeman in his in the uh, his his boss's office on a Monday morning? So you gave Arthur Scargill your megaphone. <laughs> he said he was going to get them to disperse. Was he now? When he was organising that mass picket, he rang up the other regional miners' leaders, mm. and uh, he rang up Di Griffiths, who was the leader of the miners in Wales. Oh, you, you surprised Di me. Griffiths. <laughs> I know. In uh, let me just check my notes. In uh, Wales. Wales. <laughs> and. Um, Di Griffiths said, um, oh, sorry, no, I got it wrong. It was Di Francis. I was, Di oh, Griffiths is my old teacher at school. He <laughs> <laughs> was my, my rugby teacher at school. Well, it hardly sounds Di Welsh Francis. at all, Di Francis. Are you sure he was um, Welsh? And Arthur Sargo, uh, no, Di, Di Francis said, but uh, when do you want this mass picket, uh, Arthur? And um, Scargo went, tomorrow. Um, Francis was like, but Arthur, tomorrow, Wales are playing Scotland at Cardiff Arms Park. 
And Scargill went, but die, tomorrow, the ruling class are playing the working class at Saltley Coatworks. <laughs> that, was, that was how he, he saw was, it. He wasn't one for understatement on this, was he, Arthur Scargill? No. He, um, he liked no. a bit of uh, good old-fashioned rhetoric. Indeed. And uh, I suppose you know he's the major figure of the miners' strike of 1984. By the mm-hmm. time the strike came round uh, in 84, he was the leader of the National Union of Miners, not just of Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. And he would be a major factor in the way it played out, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. Thatcher had uh, been in that Heath government that had been beaten twice by the miners. And the they mi- were sore about that, right? They were. They were, yeah. yeah. So um, Ted Heath, after a, a, you know the, the miners' strike in 74, we had a three-day week. We had lights going out. We had television ending early. You really felt Gosh. it. You know, I remember as a, as a 12-year-old kid eating dinner over candlelight and, wow. you know, uh, there being no telly after 10 o'clock, I think it was, or 10.30. Ted Heath went to the country and said he held a general election saying, who runs Britain? the government or the miners and the voters went uh, i think we'll go with the miners yeah, yeah. <laughs> hang on do we want jobs or do we not want jobs let me think yeah. about that mm. so he lost two elections in 1974 poor ted heath mm. and he was out thatcher was in and she thought well i'm not gonna fall for that one yeah and so thatcher now is Ma- leader of the opposition she's now leader of the opposition uh maggie thatcher the milk snatcher yeah and they start cooking a plan for how it would play out and how they would have to win an extended coal strike Mm-hmm. So she's determined this is never going to happen again, right? They yeah. are not going to lose. Do you want to talk a bit about a the Ridley plan? Well, the Ridley plan, one? so that was um, Nicholas Ridley, who yeah. came up with this plan. And um, I've got notes on it somewhere, but they are not in front of me. <laughs> okay. You threw well, that well, on me. Was, really. It's all the things that actually did come to pass. But what's fascinating mm. about this is it was, uh, it was leaked or published, I think, quite openly in The Economist in 1978. But it involved uh, importing... Uh, huge amounts of uh, coal and building up huge coal stocks, supplying the police with riot gear in all the different provinces. That's quite a signifier that something's going on, isn't it? It's like, what's that? You're sending riot gear across the country. (laughs) What? Yeah. Why does the Isle of Wight police need riot gear? (laughs) Anticipated Mm. problems down at the Bowling Green this afternoon. (laughs) And they passed anti-union laws. Uh, You know, they they had some anti-union laws about secondary picketing that they would they when they built up the coal uh, stocks, didn't they, to make sure yeah, that you know, the coal that, stocks. yeah, and they you know building up having a national police command center. Um, mm. With these are all things that would mean that the government was much better prepared for the strike when it came, which it did in Thatcher's second term. Yeah, March 1984 was a bad time for the strike when it came around. Thatcher had won a landslide victory in the summer of '83. She'd seen off the mm. Argentinian yeah. Navy. She'd seen off Gautieri. She'd won a landslide victory and now was the time to see off the greatest bogey figure for the Conservative government, the unions. Yeah. And the most symbolic and powerful union all, I think, would be fair to say, was perceived to be the National Union of Mine Workers. It was also a bad time for the miners to have a strike because, because, and, you know, I'll probably make some enemies here in the (laughs) former pit villages of Yorkshire, but I'd say because Scargill was the leader of the NUM. He was yeah. not a man to build alliances. He wasn't one for soft negotiation, was he? He wasn't one for no. give and take. No. Yeah, he was a he was an out and out Stalinist, I'd say, a mm-hmm. revolutionary. And he talked about the miners' strike in terms of uh, overthrowing the government. When it was put to him that the government had been re-elected with a large majority the year before, he said he didn't accept the validity of the Conservative government and mm-hmm. that uh, extra parliamentary action, including this strike, was part of uh, overthrowing the capitalist 
He wanted um, class war, right? That's what he, he was, wanted. Yeah, he was a class warrior, I suppose, yeah. it's fair yeah. to say. The thing I will say, he was right about how extensive the government plans were to decimate the coal industry. Everyone thought he was exaggerating when he said they were going to close all yeah. these pits and uh, put all these miners out of work. And in fact, the government ended up going further than even Scargill had feared. March 1984, the government had put Ian McGregor, who uh, was in charge of the NCB. He That's the National Coal Board, in case... Anyone didn't no, know? Sorry, he, yes, that's right. National <laughs> Coal Board. He'd, Ian McGregor had been in charge of uh, British Steel. Yeah. He'd um, sacked a lot of people there, won a strike there. And uh, Thatcher thought he was a good person to do the same thing with the miners. Mm-hmm. But they announced the closure of Cortonwood in Yorkshire. That was a pit that they said was losing a lot of money. That was the trigger for a strike the end of the winter, which is the worst time to start a strike, of course, with coal stocks high and the government secure. It's hard to get, uh, I suppose, public sympathy when they're not feeling the pinch themselves, right? When Quite. I mean, well, also, you don't have any leverage if um, people aren't using heating and mm. lighting as much as they would be in the middle of January. Then um, you'll, you'd have to wait till the following winter for coal stocks to run down. Yeah. They've implemented the Ridley plan, so stocks are high. Yep. And suddenly, Scargill called out the Yorkshire miners and called on other regional miners' leaders to do the same. So that's one thing it's worth saying. This wasn't a national coal strike. Uh, It was all the different regions going on strike at the same time. There was no national ballot. And that was the thing that really divided the left, I suppose. The miners themselves and the union movement and the supporters of the miners. So in Nottinghamshire, where they did have a vote... They voted three to one not to strike. And so they felt they had a mandate to keep working through the strike. Uh, many other areas, the strike was solid and people would say, you know, no man has the right to vote another man out of his job. But Scargill, I think, wasn't confident that he could win a national ballot. So he just called on uh, all miners to go on strike across the country. And so Kent, South Wales, Scotland, Yorkshire... The strike was solid mm-hmm. in the areas like Leicestershire, Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire is less less solid, and that created some of the division. And this lack of national ballot sort of was their downfall in the end, wasn't it? In a way, or it was certainly the stick that could be used to beat them. It's very much so, and it was, uh, that was the way that the government got the courts to declare the strike illegal. Mm. That the Labour Party were less comfortable supporting Scargill. Um, if it had been a democratically nationally supported strike, then they would have been within their rights to say, why are you going to work? But if Nottinghamshire had voted to go to work, then it was very hard to say you have no right to work to save your job uh, when others are losing theirs. Yeah. So very quickly, the country uh, had 80% of miners out on strike. Um, Scargill's tactic was to send flying pickets to... Not the musical uh, group. Not the musical group singing, you know, uh, <laughs> Only You. I suppose they were named after the, the syndrome of the flying picket. It would be a hell of a coincidence if it they would. hadn't been, considering they had hits around that time. <laughs> um, they sent flying pickets to places like uh, Leicestershire, Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire to try and blockade the pits where miners were still working. Uh, so flying um, pickets, for anyone who doesn't know, are just people picketing not at the place yeah. where they work. Or don't exactly. Work, so it, so yeah. people uh, travelling to try and, you know, a, a gentle word would be, say, to lobby uh, people driving into work. I mean, the reality mm. was they, they, they were held back by rows of uh, uh, riot police as they shouted scab. It is a constitutional right that uh, a worker should be able to talk to another worker on the way into his workplace to persuade him that he might support 
fellow workers on strike. Mm. Of course, the um, the reality and the uh, passions involved meant that you know this was uh, a very volatile situation and often became uh, quite ugly. One thing I should say about all of this is that this wasn't a strike for more money or for better working conditions or for uh, lower hours. This was a strike to safeguard miners' jobs yeah. and to save communities. And like you say, we're talking about 1.2 million jobs. This is Actually, no, not by... Uh, I don't think oh, we are okay, by not that many. 1984. I think that was what it was like after, after uh, the war. between the wars. Uh, but we are talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of workers. Yeah, uh, and whole and communities. Living, whole communities where... Uh, the pit was everything. The pit was the reason the village was built. The yep. pit was the reason the shop was there. The school was there. Miners had been persuaded to buy their own homes in the pit villages in the way that people had been encouraged to buy their council in, homes. In the right to buy of yeah. the, uh, 1980? In the, yeah, in that sort of culture yeah. of right to buy. Some, this was some of them. But I mean, it, uh, with their whole community being destroyed and left without a purpose, these homes would have been useless as well. So you've basically got the situation where it's like, hey, you could buy your council house in 1980 and then five years later, oh, it's worth nothing now because we've yeah. closed the pit. And there's no Brilliant. reason for anyone being in this village. Yeah. Wow. So Thatcher's argument was that if a pit was uneconomic, there was no reason to keep a pit open and pay people to dig coal that was more expensive than the coal we imported from Poland. But of course, Thatcher wasn't putting into the equation unemployment benefit, the social cost of destroying whole communities. Hmm. Uh, in fact, in the long run, of course, it cost us far, far more to have uh, three million unemployed and the terrible sort of social deprivation that followed from the closure of all these pits. Hmm. As the spring turned to summer, it became clear this miners' strike was not going to be sorted quickly. And there was, um, you know, you started to see the police being given extraordinary powers and abusing their powers, stopping people on the roads, stopping flying pickets on the road, but not stopping all sorts of people, uh, people mm. giving food support. Um, and suddenly you had police with their numbers taken off their uniforms so that they, were not, they couldn't be identified, being violent towards miners. This is really massive, isn't it? Because this is the police doing the government's work, right? Which is not their job. <laughs> I mean, for me, as a 22-year-old student, was a, it was a massively politicising year mm. because I had never thought the police were institutionally corrupt or politically biased or anything like that. I mean, I, mean, I would have thought individual soldiers was. And I'd read about things like the racism in the police and things like that. But to have mm. the police actively supporting a government policy, exceeding their powers to yeah. do what Margaret Thatcher would request of them, to be operating out of a national coordinating centre in London, which meant that we had a national police force, which is the, you know, what you have in fascist dictatorships. Yes. Um, this was a great shock to me at the time and in mining communities where they had been, you know, law-abiding citizens. It shattered the trust that those communities had had the police for generations and that was never forgiven. Yeah. We spoke to some comedians, didn't we, Angela? We'll come on to that in well, a bit. We will, but one, yeah. of, one of them was detained under the Prevention of Terrorism Act because he was flying in from Belfast where he'd done a gig and he was going to Scotland so, to do a gig and support the miners. They knew he was going to a gig to support the miners, so they arrested him under the PTA. They arrested him in Glasgow because they knew he was then... Tra so he was flying from Belfast to Glasgow. This is Steve Gribbin, who was part of a yeah. double act called um, Skimp Video. Skimp Video. And yeah. they were, they performed in Belfast at a benefit and then they were flying to Glasgow and then they were travelling from Glasgow to do miners' benefits in Yorkshire, in Barnsley and Wakefield, I think it was. And the police detained them in Glasgow at the airport under the Prevention of Terrorism Act. 
They detained them for six hours and that later said that it's because they knew they were going to be travelling to Yorkshire. The atmosphere in the country was so sort of divided and there was so much fake news, we'd say now, yeah. and so much lying about the miners and so much distortion of what was happening that the police felt justified in uh, breaking their own codes of conduct and exceeding their own powers to stop people on motorways for potentially committing civil offences, not criminal offences. Mm. But... There were blockades apparently at the Dartford Tunnel to stop yeah. flying yeah. pickets um, travelling to fields in Kent, where Kent had a huge amount of strikers. You know, most of the miners in Kent were on strike. And that, yeah, they would yeah. turn people back at the Dartford Tunnel. MI5 were recording uh, the phone conversations of... Miners' leaders, Stella Remington, put this in her autobiography uh, in years to come. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very scary time politically and mm. a time when we felt that the government were prepared to do anything beyond the sort of normal sort of uh, exercise of democratic law. They would do anything outside that to beat the miners, close these pits and crush the unions, which was really the long term agenda, I think. Mm hmm. You mentioned, obviously, that across the country there were different um, outcomes of the strike ballot. And in Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire, a lot of those Midlands areas where people voted not to strike. Um, and, and I read a really interesting article, and it was only from last year, from 2019, uh, but it was about a village in Nottinghamshire that was really split by this whole thing. There was a woman interviewed, her name was Yvonne Woodhead. Mm -hmm. She said that her husband decided to strike. He decided to join the miners across the UK and go in on strike. And she said that even now, 35 years later, people in that village ignore her if she says hello. Um, she wow. says, there are people here that will not go into a certain pub or certain shop because that's where the scabs went. Um, people made up their minds in the first month of the strike and stuck to it. So she said, you were, you know, these communities, you had these communities where the whole community was behind the strike and supporting each other. But then you had these really divided communities as well. She said she remembers that during the strike, she borrowed some plastic cups from a local school for the strikers' children to use. And when she gave them back all washed and cleaned, the wives of the miners that were still working put them in the bin, wouldn't touch them. You know, wow. things like that. It's mad, isn't it? It shows you the levels of anger that were at the Absolutely. Existing. There was a lot of anger in the striking areas about the what they call the scabs in Nottingham and Leicestershire. Mm -hmm. And as the strike went on, people's debt increased because the government had stopped miners taking uh, unemployment benefit. They tried to stop them getting strike pay. Um, so the poverty increased and the hatred that miners felt towards those who betrayed them and the anger they felt, you know, often spilled over into violence on both sides. In the middle of all this was the miners' wives who started out this uh, 1984 as sort of um, housewives who made sure the home was clean and the children were smartly dressed before they went off to school. And at the end of the year, had been sort of transformed in a sort of, uh, in a sort of cathartic tragedy. I think it, in feminism, this is a real turning point, the, the miners' strike and what the miners' wives did. So like you say, to start with, they were traditional wives supporting their husbands, keeping their homes clean and looking after the kids while the husbands were down the mine you know and then what came out of this was well it started with a, a rally in Barnsley in May 1984 so we're two months into the strike yes and 5,000 women from from Scotland to Kent from all over the country um, that were wives of, of strikers they they came together under the banner of women against pit closures and um, they organised a conference in June of that year and a large protest march in August where 23,000 working class women attended. But what this meant was that these were women that weren't politicised at all, you know, before this. they, Like you say, they were homemakers. They were, yeah. And in fact, one of these women was Sean James, who ended up becoming 
a uh, MP for Swansea for Labour in from 2005 to, to 2015. Uh, yes. She was the Labour MP for Swansea. That's right. And she says herself, she says like at the beginning of the strike, she was, well, she got married at 16. She had two kids by the time she was 20. Um, she says, as long as my lace curtains were the cleanest, my children immaculately dressed, their hand-knitted clothes made with love, I was happy. But she, wow. yet this completely politicized her yeah you know she helped feed over a thousand families a week um from nine different centers across wales the welfare centers and after the strike she took her a levels she went to swansea university got a degree and then eventually she worked for women's aid for many years and then became an mp so this is a woman who was not on that path wow the strike Before made that started. happen. So she was the one featured in yeah. Pride, that movie Pride, uh, about That's right, the gays yes. and lesbians supporting the minors. I actually saw her at one of the um, screenings of that film and she was there and she was like a sort of hero, you know, to have come yeah. through that experience. And to be a see herself portrayed on film like this was quite thrilling for her, I, I think. Bet. But uh, she's been made something of a hero on the left, you know. But these women, you know, they they were really, at the time, like you say, their benefits have been stopped. They weren't getting strike pay. They weren't... You know, so their main income was was from these benefits that were raised. So the women were very involved in organising benefits and collections and things like that because their husbands were on the picket line. There was a lovely story that we, we had a little chat yesterday, like you mentioned, with some um, comedians that were doing benefits around that time. And, and Mark Steele, I think, said something really interesting, that he went to um, a rally in Mansfield um, a rally where Scargill was speaking. And he said this was at the beginning of the strike and it really illustrated how it, attitudes to women changed through the strike. He said at, at this rally, it was right at the beginning and there was a woman speaker and he described it as the worst caricature of 80s working class men. She came on the stage, they were shouting, get your tits out, wow. you know, and just were being vile and, all, and it was awful. And, you know, these were... And at that time, the Yorkshire Minor magazine still had a page three girl <sighs> in it. You know, that was the, the attitude to women. But he said by the end of the strike, a year, in just a year... yeah women were speaking at these rallies and getting respect from these men and getting, you know, because of what they'd done during yeah. that process. And that's a huge thing for these large male working class communities to have a turnaround like that in the space of a year. It is massive. massive. And I think that the, the part of the positive to come out of the minor strike is the, the education on, on both sides that occurred. Uh, I mentioned the film Pride just then. Um, mm. There was the uh, support, uh, gays and lesbians support the minors. Uh, which was the subject of that film. And, you know, those same miners who shouted, get your tits out, would not have been very well disposed towards uh, gay men from London, you know, uh, before they met any. But suddenly no. when these uh, these miners were really, really up against it, police were sort of stopping them picketing, their benefits were being cut, and suddenly these gay political activists come up from London giving them support and money. They were very grateful to them and suddenly realised they were people just like them and they'd suffered persecution like the miners were suffering mm. just now. And so that was an education to both sides and I think, um, you know, one of the few good things to come out of the miners' strike. Yeah. And if anyone listening hasn't watched the film Pride... As soon as you finish listening to this, go yes, and watch it. Yes. It's incredible. But, you know, you will you will. I don't cry. think Thatcher really ever anticipated quite how much public support there would be for the miners across the country. Even down mm. in Devon, where I was a student, we would shake tins, we would donate uh, money. And I was a member of the Labour Party. I'd just joined the year before. And um, 
the Labour Party became a real support network for the miners uh, during that year. But the, really the mm. only time in its history, I think, the Labour Party has been more than just a political party. It was a whole support network. Every constituency was twinned with a pit. Somebody would come around and gather up food from your house, going through our larder, going, here's some baked beans. Here's some dog food, because your little miner's dog has got to have some food as well. I remember my dog donating some food to oh. their dogs. And then, of course, there's the stuff like... Oh God, I'm never going to eat that anchovy paste. <laughs> so sorry. It's like Harvest Festival. Sorry, sorry, Minor, whichever, whoever got the anchovy paste from Christmas 82. I'm embarrassed this, that you had that. This is reminding me of a little story. Can I tell you a little, it's very little story, go on, go but on. I recently really embarrassed myself in my local, this is when we were still allowed to go outside. And in my local Sainsbury's, um, like little Sainsbury's local, there was a, there's a homeless guy who's quite often sat outside and um, I'll sort of, you know, ask him if he wants anything when I go in. And this one day I said, um, I just went up to him and said, do you want anything? He said, no, I'm all right. And I said, because there was a dog sat next to him, I said, I'll get you some dog food. Oh, no. And he looked at me and it turned out not oh, his no. dog. <laughs> so it looked like I'd just gone up to this homeless bloke and gone, I'll get you some dog food. Well, I had to go like, no, 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 I thought it was your dog. Oh, oh, that's so terrible. I can't believe you thought that homeless people should eat dog food. Uh, oh, dude, I felt terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, well, my dog gave her dog food to the miners' dogs. I actually had done, Aww. I'd actually done my, I did a tiny bit of stand-up when I was just in university and when I came to London. And my second ever gig, I was went really badly. They stopped the disco and put me on. And all these bloody Sloan Rangers were going, <laughs> boo, get off. But I got paid 40 quid for that gig. And I, my only way of feeling good about it was to give the whole lot to the miners. And so when the when the bloke from the Labour Party came round, he went, 40 quid? I went, it's Money from Sloan's. Just don't it's ask. money from Sloan's. <laughs> I want it to go to the miners. And um, can I just say, as uh, that, that's thirty-five years ago, you were paid forty quid for your second gig. You wouldn't get that well, now. No, no, it was a university like summer 40 ball. Forty quid you know, for your second a, gig. It was a university summer ball. So there's <laughs> a money slopping around. It's true. Um, this other thing I remember doing was uh, there's some some hippie said to me sitting on a beanbag taking too long to roll a joint. It was like, do you know about the six o'clock surge, man? Uh, what's the six o'clock surge? Ah, oh, the government are suppressing it. But what you've got to do at six o'clock is turn on all your electrical units. Creates a real surge at the power station. It uses up much more coal than just, you know, uh, the ordinary sort of thing. Ah. So um, come six o'clock, me and all my mates are going, right, turn on the yogurt maker. <laughs> <laughs> that, that will bring down Thatcher. Now that, that, that's activism. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is, right. She's not going to stand that. <laughs> so yeah, the kettle, the electric hob, and the yogurt maker. So yeah, we would um, uh, we would do what we could. And um, there was this other thing, being in the Labour Party, because we were in Devon, mm. they contacted Devon Labour Parties and said, the miners' kids aren't going to get a holiday this year. So is there anyone who could put up a couple of children and take them to the beach and stuff like that? And yeah. we, we were like students going, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. We have kids, <laughs> kids, come stay with us. And, um, <laughs> so um, so, so we thought we'd, uh, we had this picture of these sort of sooty-faced <laughs> evacuees coming with cloth caps from the north. And um, so we said, yeah, yeah, uh, send them to us. So the, somebody came round, the coordinator from Exeter Labour Party came to our house at like 11 in the morning. Ding dong. Oh, what's that doorbell? It's going so early in the morning. All in bed. <laughs> so we, we, we're all in bed. We answered the door with duvets wrapped around us. And they, they looked around our front room with the Rizzlers piled up in the ashtray and the bloody washing up. And our, our, our pet chickens coming through the windows, eating all the bits of the food off the plates. And um, the groggy couple was looking stoned and hung over. And they didn't think we were oh, suitable. Beggars can't be choosers, John, can they? Come we didn't on. have a big enough garden. And that'll be it. I reckon it. that's yeah, what yeah, it yeah. was. <laughs> I mean, you had chickens. What more do they want? 
But that was the thing about the minor strike. People so much wanted to help in any way they could. So I'd transfer my yellow Colnott doll sticker from one shirt to the next. You know, we'd all put money in the buckets or outside football grounds and outside uh, uh, pubs and all sorts of uh, uh, high streets. My sister got arrested in Maidenhead High Street just for shaking her teeth. In Maidenhead, really? Uh, uh, yeah, in Maidenhead. It's like Because Middle that, England yeah. actually, though, were quite behind the miners right generally i think lots a lot of, people of people were, were yeah. yeah lots of people were. it came down to sort of your sort of politics and yeah but um people wanted to do so much and there was a huge amount of support for the miners let's take a short break there and uh grab a, a jar of anchovy paste <laughs> or some dog food and we'll see you after the break welcome back to we are history we're talking about the miners strike um now John, you mentioned earlier that there was a lot of wider support in the community. We talked about uh, gays and lesbians supporting the minors and stuff. But I think um, it's worth a little honourable mention, seeing as we both work in comedy, yeah. um, to talk about what was going on with a sort of alternative cabaret scene as it was yeah. in the 80s. This is a, a sort of scene... If it, it's people that weren't on telly yet. So there's people you'd have heard of now, your Mark Steeles and Mark Thomas and people like that. But at this point, they were on the alternative cabaret circuit. So on the TV, you still had Jim Davison. Yes. You know, but you had these radical performers doing um, circus, cabaret, poetry, all sorts of things. And obviously, a lot of them were affiliated with the Labour Party, were left-wingers. Yeah. And supported the miners. So they would put on these benefits across the country yeah. um, in order to raise money for them. And they would go to mining communities as well and put yeah. on shows to raise money for the miners. And then they would put on shows at like the Hackney Empire and yeah. places like that. Um Northeast London Polytechnic. Money. I sent you a, no. I sent you a, um, a little poster. Uh, poster, didn't I? Yeah, I'll tweet, amazing. I'll tweet out that poster. That's from 1985, but it's incredible to uh, look at the names on that. And um, yeah. you know, Ben Elton was on there, and Rick uh, Mail did a lot of benefits. Yeah, um, Arthur Smith, lots and, of uh, household names. Absolutely. And I work quite a lot with people like Mark Steele and Steve Gribbin, who we talked about earlier, yeah. who was part of Skint Video. And I love hearing their stories of this time because you've yeah. got these kind of airy fairy lefty performers from the mostly from the southeast of England, yeah. you know, going into these mining communities in Merthyr Tydville or in, you know, yeah. Wakefield or Sheffield or wherever and bringing this this weird cabaret to an audience that are still watching the comedians on TV, you know, still yeah, watching yeah. your Jim Davison's and your Jim. And it's such a lovely sort culture of clash, clash of culture. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. just it's such a positive one as well. And I love that... Mark Steele, we talked to yesterday and yeah. he said, you know, dying on your ass in front of these people was the worst kind of dying on your ass because they wanted to like you. They were exactly. really grateful that you'd come to perform exactly. for them. It's but they like were like dying I... in front of a load of Sloan Rangers. It's no, like, no. It's like... These people were like, I really want to laugh at you, but I just don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because you had all the... The thing about the circuit back then in its early days, it was so experimental and sort of, you know, you'd have a comedian and then you'd have someone putting a banger up their bum and then you'd have someone yeah. doing uh, kabuki mime or something. Yeah, and, we, we uh, had and... um, Andre Vincent, who, who right. was one of these comedians, was telling us wasn't he about um there was an act called the ice man and his whole act was just melting ice <laughs> basically <laughs> and he's like he's trying to do 
do that in front of a load of miners who just go, what, what's this? What the hell? <laughs> what, what's yeah. he doing? Or um, there's Andrew Bailey who uh, they said, used to, I can't remember what his stage name was, but he used to just um, hit Weetabix into the crowd with a tennis racket. <laughs> like, and things great, like great that. comedy. Great comedy. Um, and what, uh, what uh, Mark Steele was saying was that you, you just... At no other time since then could it happen like that. The the yeah. the, the, the gap, the gulf between uh, a pit village in uh, in Yorkshire and the, the the alternative cabaret circuit was so huge. Yeah. You know, in subsequent years, you'd have TV. They, those guys would be on TV, and there'd exactly. be Channel Four. Well, he said, be... you know, in the early nineties, they went, they were doing similar things for the Liverpool Dockers. Yes. But they were the Liverpool Dockers by that point were sort of comedy literate. They'd watched this yeah. stuff on TV. They'd seen, uh, you know, comic strip presents or whatever, and they yeah. were, they got this kind of yes humor. But Absolutely. in the mid eighties, this was must have just been alien but then sometimes there'd be a um there'd be a gig in london uh, uh, a benefit and then the miners would come and stay a couple of miners would come and stay with the, on the couch <laughs> on the couch and then you know there'd be some uh, uh student union at cambridge or you know durham or somewhere and the miners would go and stay there and some you know the the, the young female students would say oh I'll go, oh I'll go to sleep with a miner you know and so there were, there were various <laughs> yeah. affairs that were had it was all very pulp common people wasn't it like, yeah, I'm really sleep with a miner. Uh, and a few and marriages that's the thing, that... is it? a lot of the miners yeah were sort of getting off with radical students <laughs> like, why not but i mean not only were their uh, their wives becoming politicized but uh, you know the miners were having affairs and mm. after the miners' strike, one of the one of the sad consequences was there was just no going back to what things were before because those, those wives you talked about were not going to go back to the kitchen and having clean pressed white shirts for their little children no. and dinner on the table uh, at uh, when they came back from the pit in exactly the same way. Yeah. What was it they called them? The, was... the pudding burners. <laughs> The pudding burners, yeah. Because, oh, that's true. I forgot about that. I didn't mention that we were talking about women. But yeah, the, because often at the welfare, miners' welfare clubs, these um, sort of get-togethers would happen on a Sunday. These talks would happen. And because women were coming to them, they weren't at home cooking the Sunday lunch. So the local miners started calling them the pudding burners, <laughs> the women that were active. Um, there was a lovely, a lovely story we were told um, yesterday uh, by Steve Gribbin and Andy Smart, who were both entertainers at this time. And they did a benefit at uh, Wilsdon Junction Power Station um, at 7am oh on God. a December morning and the coldest day of the year and, um, you know, trying to entertain the picketers. Um, yeah. And by all accounts, <laughs> the um, a lot of the people we spoke to said one of the, the performers that was most successful at these gigs was Jeremy Hardy. Um, they said, you know, it's often very difficult because you have, you know... Follow Scargill. <laughs> exactly. You had these political speakers and then now for some comedy. And they said that, that Jeremy Hardy was the only person really who could follow someone like Scargill. And um, <laughs> at this power station gig at seven o'clock in the morning, apparently he uh, opened his set by saying, you know, uh, good morning, comrades. Um, I, I just want to make it clear that uh, this gig contravenes equity temperature regulations <laughs> which oh, yeah i mean there was um there was a real network of uh comedians and um musicians uh mm. organized by apples and snakes and alternative arts yeah and cast, cast new, new variety. varieties yeah um even after the um strike was over they were doing benefits to pay a mortgage pay them a, yeah. pay a fine and 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 help them get legal advice because so many miners have been arrested and unfairly arrested. And, and there's uh, sort of a direct it. line between this towards the Red Wedge movement yes, that, that think, came I later. So. And I think this is, I mean, we, you know, 
there's so much we could do entire podcasts on here and I think at some point in the future we probably will do one get them on board get them on yeah, board with us yeah because the chat we had with them yesterday was so brilliant and we just haven't got don't, time to don't, do don't it don't make it sound podcast. more interesting than this Angela <laughs> <laughs> yeah should have just recorded that and put that out but we will we will do an episode on that because it's so fascinating yeah, yeah I mean uh, I think you're right with Ben Elton and Billy Bragg mm. and all these people who later helped uh, Red Wedge. They had been supporting the miners in the mm. uh, couple of years beforehand and had the idea of, you know, uh, political comedy. And um, it brought it to a wider audience. You know, it brought people mm. to gigs and students and, and, and people in London and uh, non-mining areas to think about what was happening with the miners and to hear from a miner, give a speech, what they were trying to do. So when the miners strike uh, first broke, I was... I, uh, first happened I was uh, in, in Stirling University with where my girlfriend was and I was staying there and they had a they had a, uh, a student meeting and these two miners came to spoke to us and that's the first I heard of the miners strike was these two blokes in their full miners gear talking yeah. to all our students and we were going blimey okay that's pretty serious they're going to close all the mines and yeah. that was you know uh, you, to hear it first hand from someone was very powerful testimony I think yeah absolutely and of course because the media wasn't reporting the miners no, I mean, this is things. something we that, didn't have Twitter and Facebook yeah. and things to sort of, yeah. I mean, the media were not only you know, misrepresenting the miners, they were behaving appallingly. As you said, the the sun had a picture the of... The sun was behaving appallingly. <laughs> you know that you story sure? I was going to do. <laughs> it had one uh, front page, infamous front page, when Arthur Scargill had been directing uh, pickets when he was trying to stop the lorries going at Orgreave and he was waving his arm around, but they caught it at a vertical angle as if he was giving a Nazi salute Yeah, and said the headline was Mein Führer and he said it was Arthur Scargill. Was it Zeke Kyle, wasn't it? Zeke Kyle or something C. like Kyle, that. Zeke Kyle, yeah. The, and, um, and the print workers uh, refused to print it, right? Exactly, yeah. So the, yeah. the sun had a black page that day. Yeah. And when, Later, when people marched down Fleet Street, some of the people who worked at the Sun had a banner out the window saying, we work for the lie machine. Then that's how they even there felt how how distorting and dishonest it was. But even the BBC, mm. when they uh, showed the footage of the infamous Orgreave, uh, the, what has been called the Battle of Orgreave in the mm. summer of 84, when police charged on cavalry, on horseback, they charged into uh, lines of peaceful miners with their truncheons drawn beating those miners to the ground and then later the miners blooded and you know in trainers and t-shirts yeah. uh started to throw stones and bricks half bricks and stuff yeah. so that or punch the police the bbc reversed the footage when they showed it on the news that night it was so unpalatable to the british people to say this is how the police are behaving that they showed the miners as, as the provocateurs and the police responding with a cavalry charge now, that was shocking, shocking to me as a, uh, a middle class English boy to see the BBC. I don't know if the BBC. How did it you know, come out that the BBC had done that? Because there were, there were other journalists there who'd seen things in that order. So it mm. wouldn't be like a slow version of Twitter. It was people, you know, Guardian journalists or, or uh, writers going, I was there. It didn't happen that way around, guys. Right. Yeah. And, um, and people were also filming their own, you know, other news uh, news agencies from around the world were there, of course. I don't think the BBC were taking calls from Margaret Thatcher and saying, let's swap the footage around. I think someone <laughs> inside the BBC was going, oh, this this feels right. This feels more right, you know, that the police Gosh. wouldn't do that. But the police were doing that and but the they, truth, you know, needed uh, to be reported. You see, this it's, is where di- the spreading of disinformation, we th- people think it's a new thing, that's this fake news, but it's just happened forever. Yeah, yeah I mean... Um, Orgreave, we should talk a little bit about Orgreave. Orgreave yes. was the, sort of the worst incident in the whole 
thing. And this, this these police charges of miners, and it, and then the miners fighting back mm. uh, was a very uh, ugly and uh, terrifying, really, scene in in, in sort of British mm. post-war history. To have thousands of miners trying to close a uh, the, the, I think it was it's a, a coking works. plant, yeah, yeah, and uh, to have thousands of police on horseback charging them it was a terrifying scene. But mm. the police behaved with uh, excessive brutality. Is this South uh, Yorkshire police? I think it was all over. I think they had police from all over. That's the other right. thing about this. You had uh, the Met coming up, waving their £10 notes at rows of um, striking they miners. They did, didn't they? they yeah. yeah. I think someone even said they burned notes. I'm not sure whether they're yeah. burning them or waving them, but they were they were flaunting how much money they were making out of the strike to the miners. And Who they were, were starving. They were they were yes. And they were grabbing miners any old way and hitting them with truncheons and then arresting them for assault. And this was very common. They'd be uh, you, there's footage of miners being thrown into the back of vans and having truncheons rain down on them, and then those miners would be charged with assault and charged and the judge would uphold these charges because the police don't lie. And they'd have, uh, you know, the police would uh, agree on the evidence they were going to give and then read it out in court. And those guys had a criminal record. So this was a big shock to uh, someone like me or my parents that the police were behaving like this. And we lived in such a uh, what was becoming a sort of um, an undemocratic state, really. Yeah, that, police that, state, that, yeah. That people were striking to save other people's jobs and their own jobs and their kids' jobs and yet were being beaten, charged with offences they hadn't committed. And the BBC was prepared to reverse the footage and the judges were prepared to stretch and bend the law to make sure that the miners' funds were sequestrated and that they had no access to the money that they'd paid into their own strike funds. Mm. It was the first time in my life that I really thought, oh, the establishment are prepared to do anything, however undemocratic and unjust and or totalitarian, to uh, stop this working class movement achieving mm. its goals. Now, that's not to say that you know there weren't violent miners and that the tactic of trying to stop people going to work with uh, mass picketing, you know, yeah. is not questionable in itself. Well, but- the the whole scab label that was given to... And and uh, Steve Gribbin, again, one of the comedians talked about, talked about that pirate radio station that was set up called Radio Scab that That's would just read out the list yeah. of miners that were going to work. But the whole mood in the country was these miners are terrible. You know, they're terrible. They're violent. And they you can't you weren't allowed to speak unless you condemned violence. It was like, hello, mm. we're going to do the weather in your local area now. And I will say I do condemn violence. Uh, you know, you couldn't talk mm. about the miner strike without saying you condemn violence. And Jeez. that was the implication was the miners violence. Yeah. I remember uh, on Wogan, they had... Um, Jackie Charlton, the footballer and football manager, was uh, on Wogan. Is he from the North East? Look at me, I know nothing from, about Yeah, he was up from, from uh, Chester the Street or somewhere like that, yeah, or yeah. Newcastle. And um, uh, Wogan said to him, um, so what would you have done if you hadn't been a footballer? And, and Jackie Charlton went, well, I would have gone down pit. Mm. Me and Bobby would have both been minors. And he said, uh, oh, and would you be on strike now, though? Yes, of course I'd be on strike. Those lads are striking for their jobs and their communities. And Wogan was like nearly falling off the back of his chair. I thought, yay, Jackie Charlton's a hero. Jackie Charlton's one of us. And then he goes, what about the uh, fishing and the hunting you like to do? Some people don't like that. Oh, you get these nutters on the left who don't like No! (laughs) (laughs) He just split the left down the middle. (laughs) But, you know, what what I remembered from that was... Wogan's tone was was very much surely you wouldn't be joining Arthur Scargill's mm. strike, you know, and and it was surprising to see Jackie Charlton 
assert their right to strike so strongly. Yeah, because the strong rhetoric from the government, from the media was the... Well, Thatcher made that speech, didn't she, in which she said, Galtieri and the Argentinians were the enemy without, Arthur Scargill and the miners are the enemy within. And yeah. that is a huge thing for a prime minister yeah, to say. Yeah, to say, you know, uh, 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 you know a huge people. industry that had sustained Britain's uh, sort of power stations for a century um, yeah. and they were the enemy within. So in that in that climate that gave the police permission to behave like that and to mm. arrest people for shaking tins or to charge and Steve Gribben under the Prevention of Terrorism Act. Presumably um, they were treated because obviously this is mid 80s where, you know, the Cold War as well. You've got anti-communist feeling and there's a lot yes. of sort of um, aligning the miners to communists. Right? You know, there's yes. that rhetoric uh, of being, well, if we let them get away with this, then yes. then the doors open for communism, right? Yes. And, you know, the violence did bring deaths. There were mm. there were miners who uh, fell under lorries crossing picket lines who were uh, in the in the shove and the push, uh, were crushed under lorries. There were children who were killed when they were scavenging for coal and the and the coal slipped on them. And then mm. there was a, a, a working miner who was killed when two strikers dropped a slab of concrete on the taxi taking him to work. Mm. Um, I will say that one got... 10 times more media coverage than the other deaths yeah. uh, because of, you know, it was a murder, I suppose. Uh, so you could argue that that was sort of more justified that yeah. the brutality of dropping a concrete slab on a passing car, you know, was a was a huge story. But the other deaths hardly got a mention uh, during the strike. I think there were there five were, deaths in total I think that minors, doesn't even include right? the kids, actually. Yeah, it's I think, yeah. just of minors. Yeah, yeah. So the striking minors and the non-striking minors were so divided that in the end, uh, a separate union was formed uh, in the Nottinghamshire area with quite a lot of encouragement from the Daily Mail with a mystery figure called Silver Birch. Um, mm. But the the Union of Democratic Miners in, in, in Nottinghamshire, Nottinghamshire yeah. eventually uh, was formed and they were the, the union for the miners who carried on working. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. But for, for a year, incredible uh, solidarity. No one thought that the miners would hold on for so long, but there were divisions within families, within communities. But gradually, debt and fear and hunger uh, forced some miners back. Mm -hmm. And people would cry as they walked back. Miners would cry as they walked back to work in the winter of 1984 to 5. And many of them were not forgiven. And many of them were um, outcasts in their own family for, for, for going back to work you know, before the official return. And even after the official return, some strikers stayed out, right? Some yes, I know in, yes. um, in Kent, where I'm from, the, the Kent NUM organised a continuation of picketing yes, across the yes. county and, and delayed the return to work for about two weeks. So. That's right. Christmas was really tough for the miners. Mm. Um, the kids had no presents. They had no Christmas lunch. Uh, we were in the Labour Party. We were sending what we could, but uh, you can only do so much mm. for, for, for that many people. People were selling furniture. I remember a BBC reporter going up to a little child, you know, in one of the pit villages and going, do you think you're going to have a very nice Christmas? And she went, no. Oh. He goes, do you wish your daddy would go back <gasps> to work? And she went, uh, yes. Oh. 
Mm. And it's like, God, it was so leading, the question. Just do that to that poor child. And that child. And just, (laughs) did you feel about now about being used like that? Yeah. Oh, it's shocking. And that was normal. That was part of the course, Mm. you know. The courts had ruled the strike illegal in September. Then early, I think, November, the government announced, Peter Walker was the energy minister. He announced that there would be no power cuts this winter. And that was such a blow for the miners to think, Mm. oh, God, we're going to have to go a whole extra year. And by February, it was pretty clear the strike was lost. Um, And in uh, early March, I think 3rd of March, 1985, the miners voted at a special conference uh, to return to work. That was huge news. It was a Sunday morning. I was sitting at home watching the telly for a live broadcast to see the news. I knew this thing was happening. Mm. And BBC Sunday morning was showing Dad's Army. And they just had a little caption across the screen, just come up, newsflash, miners vote to return to work. And the sitcom just carried on playing. And it was just like, um, sitcom, the pa- canned laughter carried on laughing and Captain Mannering and Private Pike carried on having their antics. And it felt like that was so tragic after a year of the strike mm. to have it just all over and Thatcher won. And that's such um, a long time for a strike to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. And so they marched back behind banners with mm. brass bands and the wives handing a red carnation to every miner who had stayed out for a year. Wow. Um, and and Scargill, in fact, was a part of the um, march back. But the um, Kent strikers that you talked mm. about formed a picket line said we're not going back to work and he wouldn't cross the picket oh, really? line so he <laughs> couldn't march back he march so, back. yeah Kinnock Kinnock called it a, a year lost in the fight against uh, Thatcher he was detested by the miners for not being more strong they hated the TUC for not causing a general strike yeah. Kinnock was of course the new leader of the Labour Party the son of a miner himself it took him till January to stand on a picket line to be wow. seen on a picket line that's getting on for um, a year <laughs> Yes, and, and you couldn't look more awkward than Neil Kinnock standing on a picket line during the miners' strike. Um, I read one, I got one book, which is a completely Trotskyist tract, which said he was taken there in a chauffeur-driven car. It's like, well, he was the leader of the opposition. He gets a car. car yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably <laughs> um, quite a target, he detest- otherwise. He detested Scargill, and Scargill detested him, and I don't think uh, that was a big secret no. at the time. But, you know, uh, 26 million working days were lost to the dispute. Um, in 1983... There had been, uh, the year before the strike, there had been 174 working pits. Uh, by 2009, there were only six. Wow. And that shows you what um, the scale of what happened to the to the, to the coal industry in this country. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and then, you know, I'm not saying that you keep every mine open, but if you're a, you know, a, a compassionate government, a government that's interested in your whole country, if you do close down minds you have a plan for that community and you yeah. say well maybe well, maybe we'll put our call centers there or maybe we'll get some investment from abroad to build a factory there or whatever you don't just put hundreds of thousands of people's out entire communities in yeah yeah and steve gribben was saying he went back to one of those places 10 years later and he saw someone just a kid shooting up heroin in a, a bus stop. shelf and and that's the thing isn't it it's a direct line i think from the minor strike to what happened with brexit really that those a lot of those communities voted for brexit because they'd been decimated and and the remain campaign for brexit focused so much on the economy and it's like well if you've had 30 years with fuck all 
What does yeah. the economy matter to you? Nothing, you know. Yeah, David Cameron is saying, oh, your high street will close. Hey, come and look at the boarded yeah, up what shops high in, street? Our, in our town. Exactly. Yeah. Many of those places uh, never recovered and there was never the investment or the jobs for people after mm. that. The union movement in Britain was really broken in that strike and subsequent strikes, you know, just didn't get the uh, traction that they might have done because they, people just didn't feel that they could beat, that they would, they would beat that. And mm. the power of employers to sack workers, every... Zero hours contract today, every bit of the gig economy, every Amazon worker who is sacked for speaking out about conditions, you know, every non-unionized workforce. is a di- There's a direct line for the miners' strike and the defeat of the miners yeah. to where the economy and the, the, the power of workers is today. Yeah. I think that, that, that was the... That was the that was what was so important about it. I well, think. it was the first uh, huge loss for the unions and that sort of sense of, well, what's the point then? Isn't it? I suppose yeah, amongst workers, then, what's the point in joining my union if they can't win? Yeah, I mean, back then it felt like a lost war, really. Yeah, it felt like a, 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 a brutal assault on on working people by a sort of vicious Tory government, hell bent on revenge yeah. and suppressing union power, and that's really what it was about. It was about suppressing union power, not about closing mines. Um, and uh, and yet now, you know, we mm. look at coal and we think. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to be burning coal. This is, it was just yeah. This is the interesting thing, isn't it? Because actually, now with with um, the you know extinction rebellion and the green movement and everything else, coal is the enemy, right? I know Trump is the one advocating coal right? now. It's, you it's, know, a right, it's a right wing yeah. saying, "Oh, go back to coal." But back then, there was there was no that wasn't part of the debate at all. No. Um, the only one was we we're talking to these comics again yesterday. They're saying Tony Allen was the only one who um, refused to uh, perform. Saying, I'm not didn't supporting he? the miners because we shouldn't be burning coal. He was like a sort of. But he was a real outlier. Ecology. Like you say, the Green Party was. wasn't really a thing then. You no, had, no. and, and I, I remember the first time I heard about sort of acid rain being a thing and and greenhouse yeah. gases and all that wasn't until the late eighties. At, at this point in 1984, 85, no one was talking about the environment. No one was talking no, about no. They weren't even the Green Party. They were the Ecology Party. Right, yeah. They got seven votes. Yeah. Yeah. Now we would say, you know, coal isn't the answer, but we still would argue that if you're going to put hundreds of thousands of people out of work, you have to have a plan. It's got to be a contingency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The other thing I'd say about all this is that it's another one. We were talking about the Spanish Civil War uh, the other week about, you know, that the story being written by the losers. Mm. That's true of the miners' strike as well, really. The culture and and the stories... Mm. Uh, of of the minor strike, it's about them. Nobody's written a you know a moving drama about the police paying off their mortgages with all the overtime. Yeah, that's right. You know, There's no film, uh, the is there? We get. <laughs> about I was a policeman in no, the minor strike. I mean, the only one I'd say is Thatcher. I suppose the the the, the Iron Lady film shows her being tough to Scargill, mm. but generally the stories like Billy Elliot, Brastoff, Pride. Yeah, these are stories from from the striking communities uh, that make heroes out of the strikers who were striking for jobs, not for money. Yeah, there's some great. Fiction and art, theatre, all sorts of stuff. That yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. GB eighty four by David Peace is worth a read. Um, Billy Elliot is great, of course. Film and musical. The musical is surprisingly political. Actually, they have a whole row of sort of police, policemen, shield, and truncheons and stuff. It's pretty scary. Oh wow, I've not seen the musical. More political than the film, I'd say. Wow. Um, Brassed off. I went to see Brassed off at the National Theatre. And because uh, they did a they did a, 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 a dramatization of the film, right? And it was great with brass bands and everything. And as I was leaving, this woman behind me, I heard me and Jackie were leaving, and the woman behind we heard her say, well, "Of course, you know these miners all got huge payoffs. Many of them bought second homes." <laughs> what? <laughs> I wanted to turn around and scream in her face. What are you I don't know what about? paper she's reading, the Daily Telegraph or something. Who, who paid them off? True, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's insane. Amazing. Um, 
And also, you mentioned comic strip earlier. Mm. There was a great episode. Of the, the best episode of the comic strip ever was Strike, I think. They did this sort of parody. That Hollywood does the minor strike <laughs> with Arthur Scarface and the, and the Hollywood executive saying, um, wait, are you telling me that the miners lose? No, no, rewrite it, rewrite it. And then, and, and I think it's um, Alexis Sale is the script writer. And I think Nigel Planer is the executive going, um, in British trade union history, it is quite important that the miners lose. It's like, I don't care about that. The miners win. It's, a, it's worth watching if you can never get it out on video. But looking back now, oh, you know. I've not seen it. Uh, I, in fact, I've got all the comic strips. And I just haven't watched them all oh, yet. Oh, watch Strike. It's yeah, great. I will. It's really great. Um, but now it's like a, you know, it's like a tragic story from another age of an industrial Britain, of a unionised post-war Britain. It's sort of the end of that era, really. Mm. And it's sort of the end of that that kind of identity of working class communities, isn't it? Really, that, I think so. Yeah, um, I mean, to be um, in a union in a place like Yorkshire or or Lancashire, you know, you were part of something. I've talked about the, without being too cliched about it, but brass bands yeah. and working men's That's, clubs. It wasn't and, just about work, was it? It was your social no. life as well. You had the welfare yeah. hall where you would have your gatherings and parties and whatever, and you know, and yeah. speeches and things. And it was, like you say, part of you, the community. You, you, yeah, you don't get many brass bands at call centres, no. do you? Let's be honest. So, <laughs> so no, it's, it's, I think it's to do with identity and people saying, well, I was a miner, I was a member of the union and I'm a Yorkshireman. Mm. Those are things that, you know, that gave people a sense of who they were. And those, I think, have been taken away from a lot of people in this country. And I think that was, you know, a Brexit was one of the symptoms of Absolutely. that as well. That, that, that working class people have been made to feel bad about being working class. You had to be aspirational. Um, you had to want to be middle class. You had to be middle class. And I think the Labour government of the 90s and noughties can take some responsibility Absolutely. for that as well, trying to middle classify people. Yeah. The miners and the steel workers and the dockers and the railwomen were working class union men and proud of it. And, you know... That was something that Thatcher hated yeah. and was determined to destroy. On that happy note, <laughs> yes. Um, oh, just gonna go and have a little I cry. I'm gonna tell you now. I was against Maggie. I may not have come across. <laughs> well, it may not I'm glad you clarified that. that, John, because it's been yeah. worrying me about where you stood on Maggie Thatcher. <laughs> I think I think we've I think we've done both sides of the miners' strike. <laughs> this um, is a very balanced episode, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, well, this isn't the BBC. <laughs> yes, quite. We could never do this on uh, on on Radio Four. Let's be no. honest. But um, I'm sure people will think that you know we're, um, uh, we've left things out. There's so much to say about it. It's Surprisingly few good books about it, I would say. There yeah, because we really tried to yeah, find... There's, um, there's not one big definitive uh, minor strike tome. There's like Seamus no. Milner's done one about the special operations against them. And then there's all sorts of books by sort of a mad Socialist Workers' Party members. There's quite but, a lot of sort of academic things yeah. as well. There's a, a little shout out to my pal Katie Shaw, who's written a brilliant um, book on the sort of cultural um, outcomes, really, of, of yeah. the minor strike and how it leads... Yeah, it's a direct line. And, and she's actually really interestingly talking a lot at the moment about the coronavirus situation we're in as a parallel to what happened there and the sort of cultural right. shift that will come out of that. So um, look up okay. her. She's written a lot of stuff for New Statesman and things. So look her up, yeah. Katie Shaw. Very interesting. But the minor strike, 1984 to 85, the end of unionised Britain, the death of the old-fashioned labour movement, the moment that we learned that the British establishment would do uh, whatever was necessary Mm-hmm. to protect the middle classes against the working classes, really. If I don't sound like too much of a trot, I'm really quite soft la- left Labour, but it was a radicalising time for me. <laughs> John the we'll Trot, that's what they call next him. Time, if we've not been put in prison in charge of the Prevention of Terrorism Act, we'll catch you next time on We Are History. Thanks for Thank listening. you for listening.